0: she shatters and she burns fans this is hannah austin your host for the she burns podcast i'm excited to announce that my first book hello head meet heart is now out on amazon for more tips tricks and ways that you can burn bright and not burn out visit me on amazon at hello head meet heart happy reading Welcome to the She Burns podcast, the go to podcast for women who were born to burn bright without burning out. When you're at the top of your game, the difference between handling the heat and boiling over comes down to the right self care advice at the right time. And if you're ready to take your seat around the campfire, these interviews with inspiring women will help you keep your flame alive. Hello, everyone. I'm Hannah Austin, and this is season three of the SheBurns podcast. This season's theme is women game changers. In this episode, I'm talking with Nicole Hammerlocker. Nicole is a sex and relationship therapist from the Center for Couples and Sex Therapy in Portland, Oregon. Her practice specializes in areas that often other therapists leave out of the equation. Sex and sexuality, pleasure, kink, and the intersections and nuances of these aspects of life and relationships. Nicole also has expertise in the more traditional areas of relationship concerns, communication, connection, and disconnection, and ultimately repairing relational injuries. She offers relationship, individual, and group counseling options. Welcome, Nicole. I have been super excited about this conversation, and I'm so happy that you're here with me today.
1: Yeah, so my background is mostly in therapy in general and sex therapy specifically. So I came to this field because I found out that a sex therapist was a thing that you could be when I was in high school. And I was like, well, that's what I want (laughs) to be done, you know? So I kind of engineered my education aiming towards, all right, well, what do I need to do to be a sex therapist? So I, I just kind of reverse engineered everything from there. So I went to Oklahoma State University psychology bachelor for my undergrad then shifted to the grad program at Oklahoma State University for my master's in general community mental health counseling. And then after I graduated there, I started to do some further training at the California Institute of Integral Studies in their Asex certification program. So they have this wonderful program where you get all of the education that you need to really be able to say, I specialize in sex therapy. So there's some people who do sex therapy who don't have all of that education. And then there are people who have that education or through other ASEC certified continuing education classes and talks and programs get that education for themselves. So people who, oh, I I dropped a acronym there, ASEC, the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. So they're kind of our professional accrediting organization for being a sex therapist. And I am. Just a couple months away from having my full licensure and full accreditation. So hopefully by the time that this podcast drops, I'll either be there or very close to there.
0: That's exciting. I didn't realize that there was so much that went into it. I thought certainly a master's in psychology or whatnot, but it sounds like there's additional certification around that. So you're, the best expert to have on the call today.
1: (laughs) I wouldn't say that I personally am the best. There's people who've been doing this for years and years and years. Those are people who I get supervision from. Yeah, there's there's a lot of accreditation that goes into sex therapy. Um, There's a lot of research. It's a really vibrant field.
0: Sounds like it. Well, I can't wait to get into it a little bit more. Talk to us a little bit about what trends you're seeing right now. And during COVID, the last two and a half, three years that have been kind of a brain fog for all of us, what are you seeing and hearing from clients just kind of overall in buckets around burnout and having conversations with their loved ones about burnout and how it's affecting kind of intimacy and sex and relationships ultimately?
1: One of the most interesting things that we started to see in the research uh, at the very beginning of COVID was everything was going everywhere in all directions. So there were some people who were reporting in the research, we're having way more sex during the oh. long And there were some people who were reporting, we absolutely tanked our sex during lockdown. So that's a little bit about specifically some of the interesting stuff that goes on around sex. with burnout specifically, we of course saw COVID just really intensify Mm -hmm. a lot of the burnout that all of us were experiencing. Um, And in my personal practice, the thing that I've seen the most that I think is kind of impacting that the most is that COVID really broke down the very few barriers that we had in between our work and professional and typically very stress-filled life and our home, personal, relax, you know, fill our bucket life. Mm -hmm. And so when COVID happened, and of course, we all went to work from home because that was what we needed to do. And some people really thrived there. For a lot of us, that still breaks down that barrier. And now we are just kind of constantly inundated by Work, 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 stress, 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 stress. There's nowhere to go to escape it anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. Now that we're kind of, some of us are getting back to work and going to the office. Are you seeing now another shift? That's like shifting the pendulum from, okay, we're all now at home. Everyone's boundaries are completely blurred. There's a disaster on our hands. And then now trying to re-engineer new patterns and new behaviors. Is that kind of slowly progressing here or what's happening now?
1: A little bit, but what I find with burnout is... When you give it an inch, it takes a mile. Mm. So we saw that breakdown of the barriers with COVID. We didn't have any of those rituals or transitions. You know, you get up and you get your coffee and you get your work outfit on and you yeah. get in the car and you drive your 15 minutes to work and you listen to your podcast. And then when you're done with work, you get in the car, you listen to your music instead of a podcast on the way home and you take off your work clothes. Since we didn't have so much of that anymore, we broke down those barriers. We were you know, answering emails at 9 p.m. because, well, this is where I do my work anyway. And mm-hmm. I'm sure people were doing that before COVID. Like, this is not necessarily right. a new problem, but it got a lot worse. And as we're after COVID going back to work, what we're not seeing is, oh, we're switching back to just how it used to be. Mm-hmm. Those barriers and boundaries are really easy to slip back into. Our stress and and the demands of work, so the demands that people you know, our bosses or the companies that we work for have learned in these past couple of years, oh, I can expect that from Mm -hmm, people. I can mm -hmm. ask that of people and they will need it. It's being really hard to go back and start establishing those boundaries. So people are going back to work and then they're coming home and then they're still working from home, Mm -hmm. even though we now have this separation. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the second shift, but on steroids.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm hearing that too from a lot of my clients is there's no no, new normal to go back to. It's trying to figure out new patterns, kind of rewiring old behaviors. I'm curious, you know, with your clients, do you talk to them when they come into your office around burnout and stress, around what's actually happening in their brain when they're burning out, right? And the kind of the psychological effects. What are those kind of three or five main things that you really focus on for them when they're coming to the office and just saying, Nicole, I'm I need help. What's happening to me? I feel crazy.
1: Oh, yes. That's actually one of the first things that I talk with people about. And what I think is one of the most important things to address with burnout is first separating the stress from the stressor. Mm. Uh, And the stress is what is happening in your body. Your body really ramps up into, you know, kind of all power to shields. They put all of your power into all right, I am dealing with this stressor. I'm ramping your body up to run away, to fight. And if either of those options aren't possible, we are shutting everything down to freeze. But there is a physiological process of becoming stressed that Mm -hmm. happens in your body. Your heart rate goes up, your digestive and kidney and immune function all go down because your body is physically reacting to, I have to prepare us for this stressor. And in the way that this response cycle was meant to happen, we would either escape the stressor or we wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't, it didn't matter anymore because we're dead. Right. And then if we (laughs) escape the stressor, our body experiences this big, this return to safety. So you run away from the lion or you defeat the lion. Uh, you know, you've got your, your rifle or your spear with you. Mm -hmm. you have a big, fight with it. And you discharge all of that energy. You use all mm-hmm. of that stuff that your body is bringing you up to. But in our modern life, our stressors are not small and time limited. Right. Our stressors are constant and we are constantly being re-exposed to them. And frequently we are not completing the stress cycle. We're not giving ourselves and our body that signal. Mm. We're safe. It's done. It's over. You right. can come back
0: down. So we're just staying up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the biggest piece, especially with COVID. One thing after another was happening. So we were fearful. Then it was now monkeypox. It's, you know, who knows what else is next? It's always like we're on this constant alert. And women, at least my clients that are coming to me, are saying, I don't ever feel like I have relief because Mm -hmm. I just finished one thing and then it's on to another thing. Exactly. Um, Once you finish one thing, the next
1: thing is waiting in the wings. Right.
0: So it's figuring out tactics and strategies like, How can you indicate to your body and and signal to your body that that stress cycle is kind of at the slow end? But what if it's not? So when clients are coming to you who are suffering from burnout and they're coming to your office, how do you attack that? Like someone's in major critical, you know, distress. How are you actually addressing and what do you address first if there's so many things to uncover?
1: The very first thing that I always address with people is one, explaining the difference between stress and stressor. Because uh, even though we will at some point do some hard calculus around what's sustainable for you and mm-hmm. what is not. And most people with burnout are coming in because they've got something that is unsustainable. Right. But that's a question that most people have thought about before, right? Okay. Well, can I get anything off my plate? Mm-hmm. If it was that easy, they would have already I? done it. You wouldn't be here. <laughs> so that's not the first thing that I look at. The first thing that I look at is, okay, we have this chronic exposure to stressors. And that's not going away. Even if we can do some hard calculus and remove some things and make it a little more sustainable, there is still a ton. You know, you've still got your kids at home for summer and everything that that entails, or you've got your kids in school and all the work that that entails. And neither of it is actually any easier than the other. You've still got all of the responsibilities of work. You've still got all of your responsibilities, socializing, like we're not going to be able to get rid of enough of it that we can complete the stress cycle on its own, or we can escape it entirely. So the first thing that I do with people is I talk about the difference between those two things. And I start with stress. I start with, okay, what are we doing to signal to your body Mm. that it's done to signal to your body? It is okay to ramp down from our stress cycle Mm. today. So we talk about, What are things that you could do? What are things that are accessible? So don't think of it as, okay, I have to do an hour-long workout. I have to do a half-hour workout. Think of it as, what are some things that I could do for five minutes, ten minutes, Mm -hmm. two minutes, if that's all that you can make yourself do, if that's all you can give yourself to start with, that's not where I want you to finish. But if that's all you can do to start with, let's think, two minutes, can I do jumping jacks? Can Mm -hmm. I do high knees? Can I dance around in my living room to my favorite song? Can I do something to get your body that expression, that release, right? That physical, physiological release, progressive muscle relaxation for people who for exercise, that's not an accessible thing. People who have chronic pain or disabilities and exercise is just not something that they can achieve. Mm -hmm. Progressive muscle relaxation is a technique that, engages your body physiologically in a similar way and also is a lot more accessible.
0: Yeah. And so what is that? How does that work for those people that don't know me included?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a, this is a mindfulness technique. So there's a lot of great, uh, progressive muscle relaxation walkthroughs where, you know, people use the very calm therapist voice and they direct you exactly what to do. So If people want something like that to guide them through, they can Google it. But just a a small explanation, progressive muscle relaxation is going to each discrete part of your body. So you start at your toes and then you go to your foot and then you go to your calves and then you go to your thighs and then you go to your pelvis and then you go to your abs and stomach and then you go to your butt and your back. And so on and on and on, all the way up as small discrete parts of your body as you can make. And you tense them as hard as you can For at least 10 seconds, and then you let it go. And you wanna pay special attention to the places in your body where you know you carry your tension. So for me, it's my shoulders. When I do this, I tense my shoulders for like at least 30 seconds. (laughs) And what that does is it gives your body, you're kind of tricking your body into thinking, I just ran really hard and escaped the lion.
0: So it's a nice trick, but it also is useful, it sounds like, for sure. And that's something you can do sitting at your desk or even in the car. I mean, it's while life's still going on. I mean, preferably you probably want to be in a quiet location, but I mean, I'm doing it right now. Like I'm clinching my butt right now, Nicole.
1: I would I would not recommend doing it in the car uh, just because you want your attention to be on the road. Yeah. So you know, go on record uh not in the car, but yeah, you can do this in 5 minutes before bed. You can do this in 5 minutes when you get home. You can do this in a 5-minute break at the office if you want to. Something that you can fit in in a lot of places. Right? If if we're really starting from Nicole I've got no room. I can't mm-hmm. do any of those things. I say, "Okay, can you, can you sew together, stitch together yeah. five consecutive minutes somewhere in your
0: day? Love it. Great tip. Okay, I'm going to practice that. Not in the car. Not in the car. <laughs> I'm interested in the process that you guys go through and you have your clients go through when someone comes in and says, I am so burned out. My marriage, my relationship is on the rocks what can I do to communicate to my partner that I'm so overwhelmed? I'm so done. Um, and I just don't have anything left at the end of the day. And a lot of women and men are coming to me at my clientele and saying, if I'm burned out, how am I expected to be intimate with my partner? How am I expected to do, you know, to have sex, let's put it out there. So where do you start with that? So the
1: place that I start with that is psychoeducation is naming the problem and naming that it is not Just them and not just their fault. And we see in the research that even when you don't have any control over something, if you're able to name that and you're able to name, I don't have any control over it, Mm. that actually does really help. Because when we are putting ourselves in this perspective of, I am supposed to have control over this, I'm supposed to do everything, I am supposed to be able to make this impact, then of course, who do we blame when it's not happening? Right. We don't blame a bad system of work that is demanding too much of us, a bad system of economy where we have to put so much in work because you know inflation is going crazy and we just cannot afford not to. We blame ourselves for not being super people, for mm-hmm. not being able to just do everything all at once. So I'll have people name that. I'll, I'll explain to them, when you are chronically overstimulated and overstressed, your body and brain interpret any new stimulus, even positive stimuli as just more additional stress. Mm-hmm. So this is really interesting research, um, done on rats. I won't take too much time explaining it at all, but essentially when rats are put in a, an extremely distressing scenario, you know, so a lot of loud music and flashing lights and things that just make those poor little rats, extremely yeah. distressed, extremely upset we'll see that even sexual pheromones, even seeing their partner, that only makes their um, stress hormones and stress reactions increase. It does not make them decrease And the way that we see when rats are in a somewhat stressful scenario, but not chronically overstressed. Mm -hmm. So when humans are just the same way, when we are chronically overstressed, even these things that in other scenarios would be neutral or positive stimuli seeing your partner, having an intimate conversation with them, sex, Mm -hmm. those things get interpreted by your brain and your body as, Oh my God, here is just another thing that I have to do. Right. And that's what a lot of people anecdotally, they notice this, they know this and they start thinking, What is wrong with me Mm -hmm. that I am thinking this way about sex that I'm thinking this way about my partner. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think it's so important to name. There's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. Your body is reacting exactly the way that it was designed to, to keep you safe. It's just that the situation that you're in is not what it was designed for, right? Mm -hmm. We are running modern human software on ancient human firmware.
0: Ooh, I love that. We're DOS-based, but we're living in a technological world. I mean, that's the challenge. You can't go back, right? You have to move forward, especially through stress. I'm interested, though, I mean, we hear that, we heard this before COVID. We've heard this before the pandemic, like even stress in general. I mean, the pandemic is not the only thing that caused stress, right? So... Where do you even start? So you say you're in the office with you and you're like, "Okay, um Nicole's taught me then how to reframe in my mind that it's not me. It's not my partner. It's society. But society is going to take a long time to change. We know that. What do we do now mm-hmm. when um you know we are managing as women, you know working kids, cooking, cleaning, whatever it is that each relationship has negotiated, And then there is that piece, and you want that so badly to get back to that connecting with your partner? do you suggest that people have individual sessions with you? Or would it be that the couple comes in together and has dialogue and conversations? Like how do you even begin to emotionally reconnect those two?
1: So often I do recommend individual therapy. Uh, I think that it can be extremely helpful when you're experiencing relational distress to have somebody where in a space where, okay, I don't have to be you know, careful and considerate mm-hmm. and caring about what I'm saying, right. I can vent about my partner. I can say, Oh my God, I can't believe that they did this today. Like, can you imagine they said <laughs> that to me? I got home. Yeah. There, those are the kinds of things that we're, especially as women, uh, we are really careful about not doing and not saying, and I think that can be a helpful space to have, mm-hmm. uh, when I'm working with a couple, I only work with a couple, so I will refer out for those things. Got it. And when it comes to what we do in the room with me, uh yeah, one of the first things that I, I start doing is trying to foster these conversations, but to go deeper than just that first level of annoyance, irritation, you know, the, the sort of secondary yes. emotion of frustration that of course comes from all of this. Mm-hmm. When I call frustration a secondary emotion. I am not dismissing it. Mm-hmm. It is important. That is your brain and your body telling you something's wrong. This isn't okay. Right. This can keep going on. And that is such a valuable reaction. So I don't want to dismiss that surface frustration, that surface. I don't have any space for you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, I, I can't listen to this. I can't make that space. I, I want us to sit there and talk about it. And then I help people dive into, okay, but underneath that frustration, can we talk about that with those softer, more vulnerable feelings, what's Mm -hmm. going on? So instead of, you know, I just can't, I don't have any space to hear about how hard your day was. This is how hard my day was. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. wow, honey, it's when I hear you telling me about, you know, your day. And when I hear you asking me to, you know, come home and then just jump right into, you know, the house needs to be vacuumed Mm -hmm. and the kids needs these need these things done for them. And we haven't cooked dinner yet. And Oh, on top of that, we haven't had sex in four Mm -hmm. weeks. When I hear that my entire body just tightens up and starts buzzing. And, you know, I feel like I want to throw up or run away and I just can't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, you can hear how, what I was saying there, my, my vocal tone, the way that that felt in my body Mm -hmm. was really different than I just can't do this anymore. I can't believe that I come home and all you do is ask me about sex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're both related to the same thing. But when we start talking about it in that second way, we're offering our partner a chance to hear and understand us.
0: Absolutely. And
1: I I don't want to get too general. When I'm working with heterosexual couples, that is a lot of the space that I think women come into it with. Mm -hmm. is they are really frustrated because they are experiencing all of these demands on them all the time. And that's how society kind of socializes us to be. Right, And so that's a lot of the work I do with women. A lot of the work I do with men is in heterosexual relationships is learning how to make space for that and really hear and sit Mm -hmm. with and share also vulnerably in their own way. So less of the frustrated. We haven't had sex in four weeks. Do you even care about this? Right. And more, you know, honey, when I think about that, we haven't had sex in four weeks, it really scares me. Yeah. That's so different. Mm -hmm. so that is just kind of in a a loose nutshell, what I start trying to have us do to repair that connection is say, okay, we are in this standoff, right? We both got our guns pointed at each other. Right. And neither one of us wants to put him down first. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to do, because I'm this great third party, I can come in and step in between and I can turn to one person and be like, okay, can I get you to put your gun down? Yes. Awesome. And then I turn around Can I get you to put your gun down. Right. Awesome. And then I step back and sometimes the guns come right back up once mm-hmm. I step back and right. it's just a process of, okay, then I step back in and we put them down again. And then yeah. I step out. And every time we do that, so it doesn't work right away. Mm-hmm. It almost always the first time that I do that, the guns come back up. Mm-hmm. But every time that we do that, they stay down for a little bit longer, mm. and there's a little bit more safety there in the middle and a little bit more. We're not in the standoff. We're on the same team. Yes. We're really able to hear those things coming at us in a more accessible way.
0: Yeah, I love, you know, I've been through several years of therapy and um, my husband and I see a counselor often, and I've talked to my clients a lot about, it's not about us versus them or your husband or your wife or hetero, bisexual, whatever. It's attacking the problem together. It's you against the problem, not necessarily you against the other person. And that makes such a different reframe because then you're actually addressing something together. And to your point, being open enough to hear and listen and understand using the I statements, like I feel instead of you. Oh yes, communication skills
1: is a big Yeah,
0: and you know, it's interesting, Nicole, like I think a lot of people think that those communication skills are easy and they come naturally to a lot of people, but self-awareness is not, it's a learned behavior. It's a taught behavior. You're not just born with self-awareness, right? So I think that there is a lot of opportunity, especially now more than ever, when people have been forced to be in the same environment, day in and day out, they haven't had the escape of work or going anywhere, right? Because we were stuck. That mirror is so in front of them 24-7, it's exhausting. So that self-awareness, unless you have it, or that those communication skills, those are things that a lot of us take advantage of. So I appreciate you saying, you know, it's really important to, you know, it's a standoff until it isn't, until you have a third party that basically says, Hannah, can you hear Peter? Peter, can you hear Hannah? What they're actually saying. And then I love what you said about getting to the to the layer deeper because the anger and the frustration, there's the truth that's under the, it's like a skin, right? The frustration and anger is up here. And then under the epidermis of the light of the skin is the actual real rawness. So I love that.
1: Right. We talk about it in secondary and primary emotions. Yeah. The love primary it. emotion is the first feeling that you feel. And then the secondary emotion is the feeling that you feel in response to that first feeling. Mm -hmm. And it happens just that quick in your brain. It happens so fast. Most of us have a lot of trouble recognizing the very primary, the first emotion, because the secondary emotion is so quick after I ask Mm. people, yeah. And what's going on right now? How do you feel right now? I'm frustrated. I'm annoyed. I'm pissed off at them. And then we we work with that. We stay there and use that to get to what's going on mm-hmm. under because there almost always is something going on under yeah. that or that secondary emotion and reaction of frustration. Yeah. If there was one thing I wanted people to take away from today, it would be when you're interacting with your partner, when you're experiencing emotions, yes, your frustration and irritation and annoyance is important, but also I want you to really think about And, and just kind of hold and consider there is probably something going on down below that. What is it? And you listen inside to your body and listen to, yeah, my anger and frustrations up here and it's important, but what's it protecting?
0: Mm, That's so beautiful. I think it goes back to you. And I talked about this earlier is. Really excavate. It's not just burnout, but what's under that? Why are you burning out? Is it that you saw your mom watch, saw your mom work three jobs? Is that you are not inspired anymore at work? Is it that you're not using your left brain and your right brain? Is it that you're falling out of love with your partner? Is it that you're ill physically? Like, what is the root cause of the problem that's creating kind of all of this surface level distress? I want to go a little bit deeper here because a lot of my clients come to me and they say, I'm worried about my marriage. I'm worried about myself physically, but I'm also worried about never getting back to that intimacy and that connection. Um, if there's couples listening to this, maybe they're driving somewhere in the car together, or even at home, what are some actions that couples can take kind of to reignite that spark after experiencing burnout, right? Cause that's such a fatigue and stress on your cortical system and just your health in general, what is something that they could do or a few things um, you've provided some great tips so far that they can do to kind of turn to each turn towards each other and get back?
1: Yeah, so I will give a, a mental reframe and then some actual skills that they can use. So the mental reframe that the most important thing that I work with most of my couples who are disconnected sexually on around sex is giving yourself permission to not do what I call the whole roller coaster. So When I get on a roller coaster, there's always a point where I go, I can't get off. I love it. I love being on roller coasters, but there's always a point where I'm like, even if I told the attendant, I want off this roller coaster, I can't get off the roller coaster anymore because it's already started. And that's great for me in that moment. But most of us also treat sex the same way. After X point, we've got to see this through. We've got to go the whole roller coaster from... Making out, taking our clothes off, maybe feeling each other up, maybe a little bit of foreplay, maybe a little bit of oral and genital touching, if we're lucky, then right to intercourse to orgasm, and then we're done. We we have to do the whole roller coaster if we get to X point. And X point is different for everybody. So the biggest thing that I work with people on is make a sandbox, not a roller coaster. Mm. Make a give yourself permission to check in with what do I want to do? Do I just to make out and i don't want to do anything else do i just want to cuddle and i don't want to do anything else do i just want to feel each other up a little bit for like five ten minutes and not do anything else and if that is the case do that say that so giving yourself and each other in in the relationship permission actually permission to not have sex permission to not have penetrative intercourse uh because that expectation I got to go the whole nine yards. I got to go the whole roller coaster. Is what we turn away from it. We don't even buy a ticket and get in line Mm. because we don't want to do the whole thing. But if we didn't have to do the whole thing, if it could be a sandbox, there's no wrong way to play in a sandbox. I can do whatever I want. I can play there for five minutes and then I can hop out. Then it's a lot easier to approach. So that's a a reframe. Some actual um, action-based things that you can do are... One, start naming and saying and using the language, hey, I want to make out. I want to kiss each other for five minutes. I want to dance in the living room together. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to, you know, feel you up or I Mm -hmm. want you to feel me up. I want to take a shower together. So naming explicitly that this is what I want to do and having a conversation about what do you want to do? Mm. okay, well, I don't think I'm up for that, but what if we did this instead? So really creating a collaborative space to name and decide together what we want to do rather than, well, one thing just kind of leads to another thing, just kind of leads to another thing. And then, oops, we ended up having sex. Right, yeah. So even smaller things that you can do, recommendations from Gottman are the six second kiss. So not six one second kisses, but you kiss each other on the lips, on the mouth, for six seconds at least, because that is way too long to kiss somebody that you are contemptuous of or resentful of, or you hate. And if the whole time you're noticing, wow, I'm contemptuous and resentful and I hate this person, that is probably something that you need to start talking about. But what most couples will notice when they do that is at around the six second point, you start to relax into and letting it just be, like I said, just that kiss or a 20 second hug. Uh, It's a similar concept. So those are are a couple little things that you can do and practice to just make a little bit of space in your relationship for, all right, let's just be in this oasis where this is all that we're having to do for this 20 seconds or this six seconds. Sharing appreciations is uh, another great way to get things started So this is an exercise that I I walk people through the back and forth, how to do the style of the dialogue. And it's actually Tammy Nelson's Imago dialogue that I um, am taking this from. So that's a great resource if people want to look more up about it. But you start with partner A, who says something they appreciate about partner B. And it can be something they've done, something about them. So I appreciate that you made me a cup of coffee this morning or I appreciate that you always make me a cup of coffee in the morning. And then partner B reflects back exactly what partner A said. So as each specific word as possible. So not, oh, you appreciate when I make you coffee. You appreciate that I always make you coffee in the morning. And what this is doing is one, we're sharing appreciations with one another. We're, we're telling our partner what we like about them. Everybody yeah. likes to hear what we like about ourselves. And it's building that communication skill mm-hmm. of reflective listening. Yeah. I'm not listening to see what am I gonna say next. I'm listening, okay, I've got to get exactly what my partner said, mm-hmm. so I have to say it back right, or else, you know, in in my usual setting, or else Nicole is gonna tell me that I did it wrong. <laughs> right. So I'll have couples do that a couple times back and forth. Um, and then I, I have graduated versions of the exercise where we do more. Um, but that's a kind of a great place for people to start because it just makes a little moment of connection, a little moment of positive experience with this person. Cause if all of your experiences with something are negative, yeah, don't like each other, you can think about it just like your pets, right? Uh, I think with pets, you need five positive experiences to every one negative experience so that they like you and they want to keep being your pet and stay mm-hmm. around you. You can think of it similarly with your partner. You should be having or you should be striving for and trying to get five positive experiences with each other to every one negative experience. Yeah.
0: I love what you said about the roller coaster. I think that's so true. I think so often we go from not working out to having to do 30 minutes of exercise a day. And those of us who hate working out, guess what? We never do it because that's so unrealistic. I love the five minute piece. I love the tips that you told us today about Um, connecting with your partner and listening back. That's huge because a lot of times people don't hear the whole thing because they're thinking to respond. And I think that's one of the major issues about communications and relationship works, anything in general, is people just aren't listening, right? Because they're thinking a step ahead or they're trying to think a step ahead. I really appreciate what you said about kind of turning towards each other and making it fun, right? Just asking questions or acknowledging each other. Um, And the five to one or five to two, like, In a busy environment, though, would you suggest that people schedule this stuff so that even on your phone, you know, give my partner five affirmations or 60 second kiss, or I think you said feeling someone up for 10 minutes. That's a long time, but I just figuring out, I mean, could you make it tangible key tactics so that. I mean, we're all so busy. It may be something that you do add to your to-do list. So how do you make something actually happen and add it to your to-do list without it being just a box you're checking is the question.
1: Yeah. So very frequently in my practice, I would say with 95% of my clients, I recommend you're going to have to schedule it because if it were easy and we could already do it spontaneously, we would have. Um, And then you often get the reaction. Well, but it's supposed to be spontaneous. I want it spontaneous. And my response to that, to anyone who's having that thought in their head right now, I'm not telling you that you can't do it spontaneously. I would love it. Do it spontaneously, do it all you want spontaneously, but I want you to schedule it too, because what we frequently see is we want to do it spontaneously. And then because this is a priority that isn't, if I don't do it right now, my house is going to burn down. It gets bumped. It just does. Because we have so many other, if I don't do this right now, my house is going to burn down priorities. Absolutely. So that's my soapbox about scheduling stuff. I'm a big fan of scheduling and it will feel like a chore. Uh, that, one of the big things I, I try and help people do is accept when we get started with this, it's going to feel like a chore because you're putting effort in.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: going to yeah. feel like a chore because you are already at that overstimulated place it, it is going to feel like, well, this is another thing that I have to do. So that's why it's so key that as I'm doing this with people, as I'm doing this with couples, I'm also, you know, we're doing the other side of, okay, how do I make more room and more space for this in my life? I want this to be a priority. Yeah. And I can't just invent more time and space for priorities because if we could, we would have done it already. So we're going to have to get rid of some other things too. We're going to have to push some things in order to make more space for this. So for people who really have a hard time with that, uh, what I'll do is just make some space for us to have a frank conversation. How important is this? And I don't mean that in like a a trick, gotcha, you know, okay, I'm trying to get you to a certain answer. with as much curiosity and compassion and openness as you can come to think
0: about how important is this to me?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that's it's a great question. Of- yeah. And it's a great question to ask because it could be a, a 10 out of 10 for me is an important, and for you, it could be a four out of five. I mean, I think it also comes down to, and we don't have a lot of time for this today, but a lot of the women that I see in my practice is, you know, insecurities, like thinking, thinking too much. The lights aren't out. I didn't shave my legs. Silly things like that, that we think are silly that are actually sometimes people being uncomfortable in their own bodies to even have that intimate conversation or intimate, create that intimate space. And I'd love to have you on another session to talk about like, how can we work through insecurities around our partners or share that conversation? It's such a bigger conversation than today. um, But I have so many women and so many people I'm sure in your practice are like, if I'm not comfortable with myself, how can I be intimate and vulnerable and comfortable with someone else? So I think we'll put a bit in that today, but would love to have that conversation with you in the future. I'm sure you've got some great gems there.
1: I would too. We've got a name for that. It's called spectating. When you're watching yourself and you're thinking, yeah, my legs aren't shaved. What does my face look like? What does my stomach look like? What do my
0: boobs look like? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I can't wait for that. Well, good. Part two, spectating. Is that what you said? We call it spectatoring. Uh, okay. Spectating is part, probably two, a better... part two, spectating. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was awesome. I learned so much today. I'm so excited for our listeners to hear these, you know, tips, tricks, tactics. They want to get in touch with you. I'll drop the link in the chat, but thank you so much, my friend, for being on the show today. And we look forward to part two with you.
1: Yeah. I would be really excited uh, to have that conversation and and so many more. And thank you so much for inviting me on. This is really fun. This is really great.
0: Nicole, thank you so much for the conversation today. I loved what you said about the importance of communication and connection and providing our listeners with some key actionable next steps for them to perhaps take in their relationship after dealing with life, after burnout. Together as women, we are all looking for what lights us up and keeps us healthy. And together we can learn how to burn bright and not burn out. For more information about the Center for Couples and Sex Therapy, please visit their website at www.thecenterportland.com. Thank you for joining us on the She Burns podcast. We are so grateful for your time, energy, and support. For more tips, resources, and tools on how to burn bright, please visit us at sheshatters.com or on Instagram at sheshattersllc.